0: Dave here again. Before diving into the next episode, I just wanted to acknowledge some feedback I received after putting out episode number 90. At the beginning of that episode, I mentioned that for this project to continue, it'll need contributions from the community who care about it. Rob Collins reached out to me asking how he could help, and Mike Benici has been working on some written content for the Busker Hall of Fame website. To both of these gentlemen, I say thank you. And to everyone else who's listening, I ask this simple question. What are you waiting for? At the end of every episode, I say the same thing. Got a story to tell? Something you think we can improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line. And when I say this, I really mean it. That being said, moving forward, I suggest you reach out to Magic Brian at magic at as he's agreed to guide things after episode 100 when I make my departure. This project belongs to anyone who's ever stepped out on the street and passed the hat, and it can be anything you want it to be. So please... Take this platform, use your superpowers for good, find a story from this world that appeals to you, and help us keep busking history alive. All right, let's get to it.
1: You had a legendary hat pitch. Like, how did you come up with that? And like, what's the essence of an effective hat pitch, Lucky Rich?
2: Do not talk about money. Right. That's the essence. If you ever think that you're smarter than your audience, you've lost. Yeah. If you tell your audience what to do, you've lost, right? If you subtly suggest but really talk about the essence of why you do what you do and come from the heart, if you connect on that level, people will give you their wallet.
1: Right.
2: Because you've touched them such a way, you've allowed them to be able to make their own decisions with slight suggestions. Yeah. So that's it. That's the magic formula.
1: <laughs> yeah, you always had the short, effective, precise hat pitch, and it always worked.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, like, I would watch people... Tell their audience how much they would want them to put in their hat Mm -hmm. and it will totally work against them Right, but whereas if you subtly suggest certain things to do with money But the essence of your bowling speech is about why you do what you do and why you love doing what you do And that they, the audience Know the right thing to do. I mean people know man like they watch a show and they've just been taken on a journey for the last half hour to an hour, you're not going to be able to control them. You can't control other people. You're powerless over other people and what their decisions are. If you really concentrate on the essence of what you do and project that outward in in a bottling speech, it really goes a long way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And and it's
2: nice to hear that your dog totally agrees with me.
1: Yeah, she does. (laughs)
0: Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. There's been a lot of talk about how pivotal World Expo 88 in Brisbane was for the busking scene in Australia. Sure, there'd been a bit of street performing in Oz before this, but this one event brought in more street theater artists from around the globe than the land down under had ever experienced. This influx of high-caliber talent created a buzz about the art form that continues in the Southern Hemisphere to this day. Gregory Paul McLaren, a.k.a. Lucky Diamond Rich, couldn't have possibly known that the universe was conspiring to use Expo 88 to bring world-class entertainers to his hometown at exactly the right time to become his mentors. One by one, the planets aligned, and as the saying goes, when the student is ready, the teacher, or in this case teachers, will appear. Not only teachers, but also opportunities. Al Miller connected with Lucky over Skype to find out more about how an ongoing flow of karmic energy took a young circus performer from Brisbane, Australia, transformed him into the world's most tattooed man, and at the same time allowed him to raise the bar for the entire street theater industry in a life filled with some pretty amazing stories from the pitch.
1: All right, sweet. Should be good to go now.
2: All right, hopefully this will work. (laughs) Cool, mate.
1: You're looking good, buddy.
2: Thanks, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, got glasses on, mate. Feeling a little bit more intelligent than I probably am.
1: Nice. Well, uh, I (laughs) figure we should do a proper introduction.
2: Before we do that, I'd just like to um, thank the Busker Hall of Fame for, yeah, like uh, inspiring you to interview me. And it's like an absolute honor, I reckon, to even been asked. So here we are.
1: No worries, mate. You're the, like the number one person I want to interview. Like, <laughs> well, at least just talk to, okay, you, you know. Go, so. so I was going to say once in a while, the world produces a hero, like a Jimi Hendrix, a Dalai Lama, a Muhammad Ali, someone who changes everything about their industry, and life after them is <clears> never <throat> the same. And Lucky Diamond Rich is such a man. And now he's back.
2: <laughs> oh, that's a nice thing to hear someone say i guess coming from you al it's a real genuine compliment because um yeah it was awesome to be a part of your journey as far as a street performer yourself and um absolutely yeah like those words that you've just used in relation to me you know i've got a few people on my list you know people to mention you know as far as um once you've met a particular type of person within the industry—you're never the same after that point. Yeah, and uh, they're the people that really sort of shaped me to be the performance artist that I am. And um, how'd you get started?
1: Like, let's go back to the the beginning. Like, how did it all happen?
2: Okay, I guess I was born Gregory Paul McLaren, which was my birth name, Gregory Paul McLaren. And it all started for me when I was um, performing, basically when I was eight years old. Um, mm-hmm. A community theatre group came to my school, and they uh, did a show, and they were called Street Arts Community Theatre Company.
1: It's in Brisbane? From
2: Brisbane, yeah. Just to give you a little bit of a background, you know, I come from a really dysfunctional family background, uh, quite a poor family. Right. Uh, My mum was on a supporting parent pension, you know, a single mum with a really, I guess, a child that was... very hyperactive, very OCD, mm-hmm. um, very um, fanatical about anything that I guess I tried. And, um, yeah, when the uh, community theatre group came to my school, I'd already sort of dabbled in a bit of magic, you know. I was already right. sort of trying out a bit of magic and going to the school library and
0: a lot of just checking out there.
2: stuff. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was cool, you know, because I was like, wow, look at all these, like, mad magicians and, like, illusionists, like, thurston and uh even like houdini you know like he blew me away you know so like it was just this whole sort of old world magic information that i was tapping into and even though i couldn't really read and i wasn't really that like you know my schooling lacked because i was only really interested in doing what i wanted to do which was arts and performing you know right right so, right yes yeah, uh a long story short the community group came my school I then got involved with juggling and unicycling. As soon as I got on a unicycle, uh, it took me literally about an hour to master it. Nice. And I guess the guy that taught me was an English guy who worked for Reg Bolton. And Reg Bolton was an English pioneer in community circus in Australia and the UK. And he
1: was out in Brisbane. Um,
2: It was based in WA, but... The guy that he taught, who was also English, who was also part of this community arts group, he was the first person to show me how to ride a unicycle. And then within a day, I was doing things that he couldn't even do. So oh, that's awesome. um, Yeah, so I was like a, a duck to water, you know. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, this is so cool. And and then within, um, I think, a couple of days, I learned how to juggle.
1: You're natural.
2: Yeah, well, I, I just I naturally picked it up. Like I said, I was simply um, really fanatical and just really, you know, once I had a goal in mind, mm-hmm. there was nothing going to get in the way of what I wanted to do and, and so that's what I did. And anyway, the good thing was that there was a whole bunch of adults that really believed in me and what ended up happening was I was in some community theatre circus arts groups after the school festival that we put together. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I guess it was like Thrills and Spills, Gravity Unlimited, Rock and Roll Circus, all these groups that I was a part of in the early stages of community arts and community circus in Brisbane, Australia. Um,
1: Is that when you met um,
2: Derek? Yeah, yeah. Well, Derek Ives, you know, uh, actually the first time that Derek Ives and I met was... Derek was the star of his school, which was West End State School. Right. And they were a bit posh. <laughs> and I, I was part of East Brisbane's primary school. Right. Right. And we were sort of like very multicultural, very, um, you know, it was the sort of the lower class, middle and lower class.
1: Sounds like where I went to school, out in Blacktown.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> 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 yeah. But um, I grew up going to school, right? East Brisbane State School, where I went, the school was right up against the Gabba Cricket Ground. Oh, yeah. So you can imagine, I'm eight years old, I'm trying out sports and performing and all this sort of stuff, and I used to watch from the school fence some of the greatest cricket players that ever graced wow. the Australian cricket scene, you know, like Rodney Marsh, Greg Chappell, Dennis Lilly, you know, so I used to watch all these great sportsmen, and I used to think, wow, you know, like, I wonder what I'm going to be, you know, and whatever it was, I always thought it was going to be something great, and, um... What was it when you were a kid? Well, I guess it was to make people happy and laugh, I guess that's what I, I had a real talent to do that, and, um... Yeah, you once told me that, like,
1: you used to try and make your mum laugh when she was unhappy...
2: Yeah, and that's yeah, and I I was really sort of like the light in her life and um I guess at school yeah, it was hard because I didn't want to do anything I didn't want to do. So I got A plus in speech and drama and art and D's and E's and everything else. So literally I failed I failed everything except anything to do with the arts. And um, I got A plus and
1: We're so much alike. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, you know what? there's a script (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you know what there's a familiarity that exists within a lot of the um you know the great street performers that existed on this planet and um there's a real similar cycle or family background and i guess yeah like uh i had a natural ability to show off and um that's all i was interested in doing but my whole report cards were all he never does the task at hand He's always distracting the class. Trying to
1: be a clown, um, trying to get laughs.
2: If, laughs. Yeah, he'd be great if you fight himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, all that sort of stuff. So yeah. Anyway, so I had a magic teacher when I was eight years old and his name was Dave Lord mm. and also Phil Cass. Um, they were two of the top Brisbane magicians. Yeah. And I was a, a associate member of the Queensland Society of Magicians. Oh, so nice. yeah, I I was, um, yeah, really involved in that when I was younger and then then got into juggling and unicycling, community arts, community circus. And then the big breakthrough for me was when I was 14.
1: Oh, yeah?
2: A gentleman called Lachlan McDonald who started Rock and Roll Circus with Derek and a whole bunch of guys in Brisbane. Uh, He used to pick me up, actually, from my mum's house commission flat and take me circus training every afternoon just to sort of – you know, get me out of the house commission flats and uh, away from all the nasty stuff. And um, all my other friends, they were like breaking into cars, doing crime, trying drugs, that sort of stuff. And me, I was just into juggling and unicycling. And, yeah, it was amazing. And um, Changed your life. I guess it was really interesting that if I followed my life back to where it all started, it seems like there were these people that were in my life they saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. Right. And they were at there instrumentally to sort of guide me. So Lachlan and um, the Brisbane uh, Community Arts Centre, they put together a proposal for me to go and study with the Flying Fruit Fly Circus, right. which is Australia's premier youth circus, contemporary circus. Okay, in Victoria. And, um, yeah, in Aubrey Wodonga. So what it meant was I had to leave home at 14 Jeez. and live with another family and live in auburn Madonga and study, you know, and become a flying fruit fly, so...
1: How long were you down there for? Yeah.
2: Uh, I was down there for about a year and a half. Yeah, and it was great. It was so good because what it meant was I, I got to actually hang out with all the, the most talented kids mm-hmm. who were circus performers. Um, so I fitted straight in. I basically just fitted straight into the shows and I toured with them for about a year and a half. And um,
1: You learned a lot of new yeah, stuff fantastic. when you were there? You did a lot yeah. of practice?
2: Yeah, I learned a lot. I really did. And I also taught a lot as well, which was great. Right, right. There was stuff that I was doing that other people weren't. And what happened was the Nanjing Acrobat One, a guy called Lu Gong Rong, who was responsible for... (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at his name. Yeah, well, I mean, that's his name, and and he actually still teaches. He's, like, the founding member of NICA um, in Melbourne. Cool. Yeah, so he's really responsible for, like, a lot of people learning circus. So he was one of my teachers. Yeah, I ended up leaving the Flying Print Flies, and then I actually joined Ashton Circus. Oh, right, yeah. Which is Australia's. Oldest traditional circus
1: You know I was in Stardust circus uh, <laughs> Of
2: course you were mate
1: Mate you're almost uh, Telling my story here <laughs>
2: So cool, so cool man. That's It's funny. bad eh Yeah it's really Ashton's cool Ashton's old man.
1: school They're such it's like They're such cowboys man. Aren't they
2: Yeah yeah Well They're the real deal man Like we're talking like The first And oldest circus family In Australia yeah. You know like and, yeah, I, and, and I I was travelling with them for about a year and a half, Wow. from 16 to about 18. And you know, I went in a young boy and I came out a young man. Yeah, uh, for real. I literally I lost my virginity. I got a tattoo, <laughs> nice.
1: um,
2: all in one night when we were in Sydney. I went up to Kings Cross and got my first tattoo. What's that with a prostitute, and <laughs> I nice. uh, got shit face was so I was stewed, screwed, and tattooed all in one night, man. It was like uh, I was initiated or something like that. I, I felt like I'd arrived. Oh, know? that's awesome! <laughs> it was amazing.
1: That's cool, man. And your first tattoo?
2: My first tattoo was a Dubai Juggling Club. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, I can't believe it. Can you yeah. still see it? Nah, no, no, it's gone. It's been gone. And actually, a friend of mine, Inga, who went out with the mighty Gareth. Yeah, Inga. Yeah, she sent me a photo of that tattoo uh, when what? I was staying with both of them when I was in a squat. They were living in a squat in London. Dude. And I stayed with them back in the early days of Covent Garden, yeah. you got to so, dig up that photo yeah, and think, send it to me. Yeah, she sent me the photo, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. The first ever tattoo that I ever got, you know? Oh,
1: yeah, I want to see it. I'm
2: still trying to finish that tattoo.
1: <laughs> so and that, how did that become um, – did that – soon after that become street performing?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened, Al, was um, I left Ashton Circus. I was 18 years old. I was back in Brisbane, and I was on the verge of applying to get a normal job, right? So I didn't know what to do, Al. I was like, wow, what do I do? You know, like I'm like one of the highest skilled circus community arts performers, but I don't have a show. I don't know, you know, I don't know how to make money. So I was really a bit lost. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to go and wash dishes or something like that. And then a mate of mine told me, oh, World Expo 88's happening. And I didn't realize that World Expo 88 was the cream of the absolute international crop. Absolutely. Of street entertainment was coming to my hometown right at the right time wow. when I was just about to go one way or the other, you know? That was the and,
1: beginning um, of street performing in Australia, Yeah. that event. Yeah. so
2: the only street performers that I ever saw before World Expo was um, a guy called Ron Athy who was a juggler and fire breather in Queen Street Mall, Right. and um, another guy called Tony, who was a one-man band, Lachlan McDonald and Derek Ives and Stuart McDonald, right. who were the flying 2 who were a juggling group who did like um a whole different bunch of stuff. Oh, Rusty Balls, Rusty Cody was, was there. Face. Wow. Yeah, Rusty. Yeah, Rusty was one of my first ever street acts.
1: Wow. That I saw.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I was like blown away. I was like, man, this guy is so cool. You know, good like, juggler. Big red beard. T- yeah. Juggling a, like a plate, an egg, and a, you know, God knows why. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was like one of the originals, man. Wow. Like, I love Rusty, man.
1: Yeah. He was totally. sick. And Tony Living Space was there at
2: the Expo too, eh? No, Tony Living Space was street performing. Oh, before. Just doing like He wasn't Tony Living Space then. He was um, doing a different act. So
1: right.
2: Tony hadn't become Tony Living Space at that point. But, um, yeah, World Expo 88 happened. And it's a really interesting story how I would go to the place where you apply for jobs, right? Right. And I would say, oh. I want to apply for a job at World Expo, and they go, "Okay, no worries," and they give me a day pass to get into World Expo. So then I would just get in, and I would fuck—I wouldn't go to the job. I just go and watch and, shows <laughs> and watch, watch acts, and I like for free, and and I literally had probably about a hundred dollars left in my name. You know, like mm. I was on the bones of my ass. Yeah, you know, I was performing. You know, I was doing a few acts like. Like, I do, like, some shows down at Circus Paradise. So I get a few gigs here and there. Right, right. Um, but I wasn't street performing at all, you know. And I befriended a guy called Derek Scott, right? Right. He was a guy from Canada. He did this uh, an amazing three cigar box routine, and he was a juggler, comedian. Anyway, he needed some modeling balloons. Right. And I knew where to get them. So I said to him, look, I'll get them for you and I'll bring them tomorrow, and he goes, yeah, no worries, cool. There was a party happening the next night, so he said to me, well, come to the party, bring the balloons. I was like, okay. So I gave him the balloons. He said, do you want some money for them? And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. And then literally the next day, he bought me a season pass to get into World Expo. So I mm. went from wow. scanning my way in every day to getting a season pass From a guy called Derek Scott. So then I was able to get in for free. And then I befriended a guy called Lee Ross. right, Who's a New York bomber. And Lee Ross was like, hey, man, there's a job coming up at World Expo where you dress up as a flower. And all these neither actor students all had the gig. And there was one person that pulled out and they needed to fill it. And what happened was I just read my first ever book and it was called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, right? Right. And I just read that book, right? So, literally, I went into the job interview and I used all the techniques that this guy said in this book, (laughs) right? I was like saying the guy's name and I was saying it like multiple times and like, you know, I was actively listening and I was just, I was trying out all the moves, right? And then, Two days later, I landed the job, right? So I was now, not only was I actually able to get into World Expo 88, I was also able to hang out with the performers because I was a paid performer. Right. I was now paid to learn how to street perform. I couldn't believe it. It All you had to do was was dress up like a flower. Yeah, and all I had to do was dress up as a flower (laughs) and go around with these students pretending to be like some performance ensemble. Right. And, um... In the meantime, I was just hanging out with all these acts, going, "Man, this is this is so cool," you know. Like, how long like, was Expo on? Uh, it was for six months, right? Jesus, so there was like a guy called Izzy Tawinski from America. There was Fred Anderson. Oh yeah, uh, Lee Rock, In San Francisco. Nice. Dick and Dick from Vancouver. And then there was a guy called Alex Elixir. Yeah, yeah. Alex the Jester from Boston.
1: Yeah, he's uh, a good mate of mine. That's cool.
2: There was all like there was so many amazing acts, right? And I'm sure right. it was he. I've missed out, but then what happened was a few people were saying, oh, there's this guy that's turning up, and his name's Captain Kino.
0: He's mm.
2: like totally wild. Just like people started warning me about this guy, right? And I was like, "God, oh, who the hell is this dude? You know, this, he sounds really interesting, right? And they're all going <laughs> on about his act and how wild he was. And, yeah, Paul Keane. And um, anyway, and then I was also hanging out with a guy called David Sheridan who did an escape act. Right. And he was from the UK and he also resides in New Zealand. He does a statue out called
1: Captain uh, Cook,
2: right? Captain Cook. Yeah. Exactly. I couldn't believe it, right? I met this guy, Keno, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this guy is unreal. I was like, wow, who is this dude, right? Right. And then, it's just and then wild. I was stuck to it like a flight of shit, you know? Like, I was just like, <laughs> where are You know, I offered to carry his staff. Whatever he needed, I would get, you know, and I was just, like, so eager. I was a sponge, man. I was just, like, I was just so yeah, keen take to, it like all in. absorb as much as I could, you know? Because yeah. I knew that eventually this expo would stop and then I would actually have to sort of come up with some sort of a show. And
1: That's funny that you mentioned that because, like, you know, that everyone's mentioning that he's coming and he's a bit wild. Da, 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 da. Like, that is... The exact same story that was told about you, like all over the world after that.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I just instantly gravitated towards him because, like, obviously, Kino had his own personal problems, you know, and I won't talk about that on here, but, like, out of respect for him, because, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, but really, like, from the family history that I came from and the connection that I had with him, it was sort of just matched, you know, and it was like, I really connected with this guy, you know, and, um, you know, I was wild, he was wild, and basically um, he was like what everyone was talking about. And then what ended up happening was I was at the right place at the right time, we are at some party, and then uh, Kino said, oh, uh, this is such and such from the um, Gold Coast City Council. He's booking acts after Expo.
1: Mm.
2: He looks at me and he goes, you've got an act lucky, and I've gone, yeah, I've got an app, and he's gone, <laughs> uh, he's gone to me, oh, what do you do? And I just picked up five balls and started juggling them. Right. He goes, right, you book, right? And I was like, oh, Beautiful. okay, cool. He goes, come down in two days after expo's done, and um, I'll pay you. So I got literally paid $500 a week nice. as a retainer to street perform, to learn how to street perform. I didn't even have an app.
1: Wow. Right?
2: And literally all I could do was take – a bit of Lee Ross, a bit of Derek Scott, a bit of Captain Keno, a bit of Dave Sheridan, a bit. And I just, like, I was like a chameleon. I just took everything I possibly could and sort of just, like, made that into me, you know? And I didn't even know who I was, right? And then I was like, oh, I've got to come up with a show name, you know? Like, my name's Gregory McLaren, right? That's not a show name. I've got to come up, right? So I was like, oh, and then I heard about, one of Kino's protégés called Nick Nicholas.
1: Yeah.
2: It's like, oh, Nick Nicholas, like, that's a cool, catchy name. And I was like, oh, when you see me perform, what are you seeing? They're like, oh, you're like a little boy, you know, you're like a little kid and, and <laughs> you're like charming and like, and I was like, oh, okay, what about Richie Rich? And I was like, oh, Richie Rich, that's cool, man. Yeah, yeah. that'll do. So so that's how I came up with that name and then I changed it by Depot. And I was literally, legally rich, rich, rich from that point, you know? You changed and, um, your
1: name by depot at what age?
2: 18, yeah. I was like, because <laughs> uh, what you got to understand about me, and I know you already do on a deep level, is that whenever I do something, I am all or nothing. That's right. it. Like, yeah. So I was like, no, I don't want to be one of those Hollywood fucking superstars that has a, another name that they call themselves, right. that they were born with. If I'm going to do this, I'm it right, that's it, right, so that's why I did that, and I just thought, you know, so anyway, I was down the Gold Coast after Expo, and man, my act, I tell you what, if you would asked me to describe my act, my first show, <laughs> I think I tried to follow some guy, yeah, he turned around and clocked me, you know, like, <laughs> Do uh, Billy Ross. Cool, like, yeah, and like, and I was like, oh, well, Obviously, following is not a really good idea because <laughs> people get offended by it. Right, <laughs> And right. then, you know, and, uh, I was just trying everything I possibly could, you know. And um, a group from the UK, they sold me my first DM Unicycle. Oh, yeah. So I had a DM Unicycle and then I sort of started to build my show up and um, literally my first show, I had everything in it. So I had more stuff and more bits to do that I could possibly fit within 40 minutes or right. an hour of a show. It's kind of how we all and, start though, and, right? Too many tricks. Yeah. Oh my God. The amount of stuff <laughs> that I had, it was just crazy. It was like I was totally hiding behind all these things, you know? And, right. um, because I guess I hadn't found myself yet. Keno goes, oh, shave your head. Him and his brother, right? Yeah. So his brother was a man who was over visiting Keno and – um yeah, and he goes, Why don't you get a mohawk? So I was like, Yeah, okay. So I did that, <laughs> and oh my God, it looked terrible, you know? And then Keno gave me like a skullcap mohawk, so I put that on. So i right. start the show with a skullcap mohawk, do the whole show, and then right at the end, take the skullcap mohawk off, and then have a mohawk on me, just to get <laughs> that one laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I got to collect the money in the skullcap, you know. Oh, that's And I, I was just trying to, anything I possibly could, man. I was just so desperate to like absorb as much as I could and learn. And um, so, were yeah. those
1: guys all working there at the same time after the
2: Expo? Yeah, everyone was there. Like, there was a whole bunch of acts down there. And who was your favourite uh, to watch? I, Forrest. I met Forrest, black guy from Philadelphia. Everyone knows Forest. Um, I got a good Forest story. Oh my god, man! I, <laughs> I don't get me started on forest stories. Oh my God. All my influences have, have been great in some ways and very not so great in other ways. Yeah, yeah. But that's life. You know, these people came into my life for a reason, and I've got a lot of respect for those guys. And, you know, they gave me the time of day. They didn't have to, they could have just told me to rack off. And right. um, they didn't. They obviously saw something in me that I couldn't, and it sort of turned me into the person that I am today. Right, you know, cool. so. I guess after the Gold Coast, what ended up happening was I went to Melbourne to perform in Bourke Street Mall. How and, was your show uh, at
1: this point? Was it like getting pretty solid or still a bit loose? or?
2: Uh, look, it was getting better, but it was still pretty loose. You know, I was breaking it down. I was just sort of taking a lot out and I was getting pretty good at it, but it wasn't really polished.
1: What were you wearing when you started, like, apart from the mohawk? Like, you didn't have the kilt or anything. No, nah,
2: nah, what I did was I basically was just had, like, black trouser shorts and a white shirt with a bow tie and... Covent Garden style. Up white. Well, yeah, I kind of got influenced by that before I even made it to Colvin Garden. Yeah. And this is the thing was that as I was going along, people would say, oh, Covent Garden, oh, Pier 39, oh, Washington Square, oh, the Butterfly Man. So all these people and places were getting mentioned, and I was just like, wow, I'm so going to embark on this journey, you know. Anyway, so I went to Melbourne, and there was a thing called the Melbourne International Buskers Competition. I had only been performing in Burke Street Mall for probably, I don't know, probably about two months. And then I entered it, and I won. Yeah, that was I think that was like 1989 or 1990. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't even been overseas yet. And then (laughs) I learnt how to pick locks through doing escapology and stuff. Oh, beauty. And I don't know if you know, but there's these things called gold phones, and they're in all the arcades in Surface Paradise. and, And on the side of the phone, if you pick the lock and turn it, you can actually adjust it. So you can make a phone call anywhere in the world for free. And then it goes back into public use, right? Right, right. So you have to pay for the phone call. So I literally picked the locks on these phones so I could ring up the Halifax International Street Performance Festival. (laughs) Uh, I got booked for all these festivals.
1: You told him you won this busking competition in Melbourne and you should get booked. Yeah, and then
2: so all of a sudden, right, my first tour was booked. I went to Vancouver, performed in Granville, Island. Yeah. And, and I stayed with Dick and Dick. Yeah. Then I hooked up with a guy called Red the Juggler in Victoria.
1: Right, right, right. Uh,
2: he was a pretty amazing juggler. He juggled seven balls like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, I remember meeting uh, him once. Yeah, Red, and he performed out in Victoria.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh it was amazed went from there to Boston. I hooked up with Alex, the right, Chester, Alex and then oh, Alex the Chester.
1: Chester. Chester. Yeah.
2: Artist, yeah and performed in harvard square how was that yeah it was great it was unreal had to find being like outside of
1: australia were you like killing it doing it
2: yeah Yeah. i was doing it i was like this aussie kid like just street performing you know and um and then i went down to the ija international jugglers convention in baltimore
1: yeah
2: i saw my absolute hero which was anthony gatto who was like the best juggler in the world yeah right on um I then decided at that point that I was never going to be the best juggler in the world, that comedy was obviously <laughs> going to be my forte.
1: Yeah.
2: I was just going to absorb as much as I can and I went to the Montreal to the Just for Laughs Festival. Oh, and hooked up with a group called Les Voila, who oh, were yeah? also at Expo. Oh, really? Right yeah, and they were like a French music juggling act. Yeah, they were really amazing. Les Voila. And then went to the Halifax... International Buskers Festival, and the Flying Dutchman, the Canadian and Dutch um, uh, Unicycle Juggling Act, the Butterfly Man, Derek Scott. There was a whole whole heap of acts there, right? Anyway, so my first show that I was scheduled to do, right, was on the best pitch, which was the church pitch, Right. right? And obviously you get teamed up with somebody, right? And, of course, I'm teamed up with the butterfly man, Robert Nelson. So I'm like, oh, my fucking God. Like, the guy that I've actually – the whole reason why I've even come to the States is to meet this guy, like absorb whatever this dude's got. And here I am on the pitch, and I'm like, okay. So the butterfly man goes to me. Robert goes, okay, so kid, do you want to go first or should I? And I go, oh, well, can I go first? And he goes, nah, how about I go first? And I go, (laughs) oh, okay, (laughs) right? So Robert Nelson goes out, absolutely kills it, right? Yeah. He's a performing legend, right? And I'm like, oh, shit, here we go. So I go out and I did my absolute best and literally I walked off like, I blew the top off, I came off stage, and the butterfly man turned to me, Robert Nelson turned to me, and he goes, hey, kid, he goes, you've got good timing. Nice. Uh, and I was just like, oh, oh thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, every word, you know, that came out of his mouth, I was just like, oh, wow. The butterfly man said I've got good timing. Wow. Oh, that's, that's, cool. so, that's so amazing.
1: And was it, was it 10 days back then, or was it still like three weeks? I think it was three weeks. Oh, man. Wow, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, so I went from there, and then all of a sudden I was like, wow, the butterfly man thinks I'm cool. All right, that's it. I'm going to rock this fucking festival, right? Yeah. Anyway, the Flying Dutchman, they won the People's Prize and all yeah, that. They yeah. were like kings, you know what I mean? I sort of really idolized them because they were on like a 10-footer and an 8-footer, you know, yeah. unicycle. Uh, you know, so- and, and you know, I was just on a, like a seven footer. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: that's what inspired you so, to go higher.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I just was like, oh my god, look how tall those unicycles are, and they were like passing, and yeah, doing like a whole routine, and they were like the kings of the pitch, and and I was like, man, that's the sort of show I want to do. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's that's the scale, you know, right there. Look at Big. that, you know. And then to a ten footer, and I was like, whoa. This guy's got so many unicycles, you know, like, what yeah. the hell, you know? Like, yeah. Sorry, Mikel Hessling, he was like on the eight footer passing to him with torches. And yeah, it was amazing, man. And um, I went to Amsterdam, performed in the Lights of Plane yeah. with um, the Dutchman, because they invited me over and that. And um, awesome. Micah was performing as well. Mm-hmm. Robin Bonk from New Zealand, he was there. Right. And then I went to Covent Garden. Oh, and then that was it. Like, literally, that was where I
1: had arrived, you know? And uh, Um, at this point, were you, like, holding your own against everyone else? Your crowds were pretty big, like everyone, or?
2: You know, look, put it this way. I was doing well, but it just wasn't seasoned. I was just, like, I was a rookie, you know? And, um, you know, I was, like, a high-level rookie, don't get me wrong. I I was, like, I was taking it in. I was holding my own, but, really, it was, like, I was out of my depth. So yeah anyway I rocked up to London Kino made me catch a cab from like Heathrow Airport to Covent Garden I paid right. like 50 bucks. He yeah. wasn't even there he was in some pub somewhere else yeah. not know. Anyway so I turned up and I stayed in a squat I think it was Nick Nicholas's squat and yeah. there was a guy called Fergus Akin Mr Fungus. Oh yeah from New Zealand. Uh, yeah from New Zealand he was there and Everyone was sort of, like, smoking hash, and, you know, I was like, oh, wow, this is cool, you know, like, drinking at the pubs, and, you know, all these, like, fucking peers of mine, we would, like, party up in Covent Garden, and then come back in the morning, and, like, literally be, like, first out of the draw, man, and be there every night doing the same thing. So there was, like, guys there that had normal family lives, and acts in Covent Garden that really did not like us at all we were like the rugs you know the punks we were just like running amok man you know and we were just like breaking all the rules we were doing as much as we could any chance we could get out there we'd be out there someone would like go out there for five minutes and bail their show I was straight on there like it was like currency it was like gold it wasn't even about the money it was about getting the air time getting the pitch time getting out there and just like in the art, you know? Yeah, yeah. The life of me, I can't remember his name right now, but I remember John. I think his name was John. Him going out there and um, hardly anything, like two things this guy would do. How can you go out there and just do two things? Right. And that's your whole act. I was like, wow, this is really cool, you know? Right. And then that just changed my whole way of looking at a show it wasn't about all the cool things that I could do and how much I could fit in there. It was all, you know, a start, middle, and an end, and it would yeah. all build up from the start, go right to the peak finale, and then boom, that was it. It was all about the, the last bit of the act, you know, and, and the impact that it would have on the crowd. You know, Were so. you doing
1: the, the Apple Eat at that point?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, well. I started doing eating the apple. I think I was even juggling three fire torches at one point. I'd sort of do a whole bunch of stuff at the bottom of the piazza, and then I would build up to getting on the inner cycle, and then that was it. It was like right. um, the rest was history, you know. And then what ended up happening was I was making so much money street performing. Right. Um. I went from like my first year to sort of like being in amongst all of them to. Being the top money earner. Right. Then there was me. And then there was Pepe, who was like under me as far as the size of the crowd. His crowd was just as big, but he wasn't making as much money.
1: And why do you think that
2: is? I think it was because of the combination of the skill and the formula.
1: Right.
2: And the fact that I was fit, youthful, and just at my prime. Don't forget my whole apprenticeship to being a street performer was circus. And yeah, yeah, circus, So nice skill. that was all skill, but, yeah. you know, so my skill was up there. So really it was all about selling it. Covent Garden and street performing taught me how to sell it. Right,
1: right. You know,
2: at one point I was bottling the Punch and Judy balcony yeah. and I was bottling the two side balconies as well. So I was bottling all three balconies wow. plus the piazza. No one was doing that. You know, there was the indoor pitch, there was the back pitch. But yeah, literally it was just like get as much street performing time as you possibly could. Yeah, And then, yeah, I guess I would go from Covent Garden street performing in London all summer and then I would leave to the Edinburgh Festival, mm-hmm. uh, come back to Australia, and just do the summer in Australia. You know, Circular Quay, Sydney, the MCA, Bondi, Bondi Beach. I remember yep. I used to do that quite a lot. Then, you know, Melbourne would be St. Kilda, Markets, and then the St. Kilda Festival. Yeah. I remember meeting you for the first time at the St. Kilda That's right. Kentucky.
1: You that did a big show that day.
2: Really
1: cool. <laughs> <laughs> was a, was I was beautiful. like, I saw this guy doing this show, and I was like... <laughs> What the hell, man? He's got the best pitch. Like, he's just got this <laughs> massive, massive crowd. Like, how does that happen? So me and my cousin Mitch were like, oh, well, maybe we can go and share the pitch with him and we'll get a big crowd too, you know? So we go down there and, can we go next? You're like, yeah, yeah. Can we borrow some of your caro for our fire torches? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we just failed miserably.
2: <laughs> it was funny as <laughs> But man, that was so cool, man! It was so cool to meet you, like at your um, at in the, the beginning. beginning of your uh, street performing experience, man. Yeah, it was like, yeah, and then so there was the St Kilda Festival, there was the Brunswick Street Festival, there were all these festivals that were happening. Port Ferry Festival, then I'd go over to Perth and um, I perform um in Hay Street Mall, mm-hmm. Murray Street Mall, the Fremantle, uh, and then there was the Rundle Mall. In Adelaide, um, do you feel like that was um,
1: the like peak of your career right
2: there? Man, I was just living the dream because, like, literally, I was talking to a bunch of friends about this just recently, and I was saying that the happiest moments of my life were when I had my suitcase with my show gear in it, yeah, and that bloody three foot fucking pole that I used to carry around which was a DM pole yep. that didn't fit in the sense suitcase. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many years I carried that thing around. I used to go on public transport and literally one time this guy got on and he thought, because I was on the bus, he thought it was the pole on the bus and he held onto my pole. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, dude, that's the pole. Like, <laughs> 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 Nice. It, it, it was just like, oh, man, DM three-foot pole was just like, the bane of my existence anyway
1: you're then, on a 10 footer um, at that point
2: yeah well then i went from like 8 foot to 10 foot obviously the tattoos started happening yeah i was getting pretty heavily tattooed i got banned from burke street mall at one stage because wow. i ended up there was a fight between me and the tram drivers in burke street what the crowds were so huge yeah. that the trams would actually have to stop and wait for the crowds that let them through. Mm. And I was the person responsible for, like, actually, like, stopping them all, literally. Right. And this one tram driver was so pissed off with me that he nearly ran me over on my unicycle, and I ran up to the tram at the end of where Swanson Street was. I jumped in, and the guy went to hit me, and I knocked him out. I don't know about you, but, like... If you knock out a tram driver in the middle of peak hour, yeah.
1: right?
2: Well, it's not a good look, man. Because no. like, like, it's old tram full of people, and the trams get backed up. Right. And then I went back down and finished my show. Right. 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 The cops turned up, and then no. the council got involved, and they didn't press charges because the guy threw the first punch. And right. But because I was a boxer, I just, you know, I, I no. like, knocked him out. The councillor said, look, man, I think it's best if you um, go and work somewhere else for a while. Right. So then I left Melbourne and went to New Zealand. I went to Christchurch, and I went from, like, being banned from Bourke Street to basically having the key to the city to Christchurch because Vicky Buck, the Lord Mayor, came down yeah. and put, like, 50 bucks in my hat wow. and wrote me a mad reference saying, you know, like how awesome I was for the city, and then I got booked for the uh, Christchurch Buskers Festival yeah and literally it just went from there um you work in the Cathedral uh, Square there yeah and I worked in that Cashel Mall and I worked the square right with the wizard Wizard. Christchurch wizard
1: remember the wizard oh yeah yeah, the two-ended car yeah
2: yeah Yeah, man the wizard man I would like to share the pitch with him man the big square yeah and I'd stay in the Irish backpackers right in the corner man right um and then I just like I would go down to Queenstown. Nick Nicholas showed me a pitch down there, and that was just an absolute goal. Yeah, it's a
1: killer pitch.
2: Then we'd go out and perform, you know, in uh, Auckland down along the harbour side there. And yeah, yeah. Literally, I was just like getting booked for like festivals, just doing street pitches. Every year, I just go to a new pitch, like Washington Square in New York. I always wanted to do that because I'd always heard about um what was that act called the guy that used to go on about um the mexicans and he was a black oh, stand-up. charlie comedian. barnett charlie barnett yeah, yeah yeah and i always heard about him and t- was it tick and tack tick and tick, tick, tack. tack yeah i think um lee ross told me about him yeah and, yeah oh william lee william, william master lee. lee he was amazing he's so cool you know just go and just try and find these pitches that people kept telling me about and I would just go and work them and do my best. You know, I went to Venice Beach and went Venice Beach with the butterfly man. That was awesome. That was like one of my favorite moments in street performing, you know, like the famous pitch, you know,
1: did you do a right out there?
2: Yeah. 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 So street performing has been really good to me. You know, I, I guess, um, I guess I kind of lost myself there for a little bit. You know, I got kind of caught up in the drug scene a little bit, um, not a little bit, like a lot, actually. And, um, you know, so I kind of got a little bit misguided, started believing my own bullshit for a while and sort of lost myself. Uh, It was bad, but it was also good, you know. Uh, And if anything that's ever happened in my life that's been bad, I've always got something really good out of it and something rich, you know. And uh, I've learned a lot about myself, you know. Uh, just from being a street performer, you know, um, I-, I learned that like actually being on the pitch and making money and uh, obsessing about hats and how much you make and how big your show is and right. all this sort of stuff can actually become a bit of an obsession, you know, Absolutely. And, um, and it can like almost become your identity, really. So, you know, I kind of needed to lose myself to find myself, you know, I'm kind of at a different phase in my life these days. I'm definitely um, uh, looking forward to performing in Covent Garden yeah, this man. year. I'm about one month away from turning up, so awesome. that's going to be really amazing to go back and be the performer that I've always been, and to you know be the best version of myself that I could possibly be. And obviously, that'll come out through my shows and through yeah bringing what I bring to the street. So I guess also I'd like to. I'd like to mention a couple of people, you know. I'd like to mention our mate, Bike Boy. Oh, yeah? I'd like to mention Sean Bridges. Yeah, like, Sean for me was um, someone that um, I guess I really enjoyed performing with. Yeah, it was really cool to be able to sort of, like, share the pictures with Bike Boy and Space Cowboy, you know, um, yourself, JP, there was uh, Mitch. Yeah, um, mate. I guess I'd like to thank Dom Ferry. Yeah, Dom Dom's Ferry. a legend. He was like really instrumental in the early days yeah. of being able to sort of uh, put me up whenever I come to town to Sydney. and nice. I stay with him and his partner, and he was really sort of the hub of anything to do with street performing for a while though Oh, yeah, so definitely. It was really good to be able to sort of... He was our voice. And um, Andy... Sip and Zap you know and yeah. we you know yeah I guess all the Australian boys you know we really made our mark on the international performer scene you know in yeah. Edinburgh and Covent Garden and Halifax and all over really and I'm really proud to be an Australian street performer because we were sort of like the rogue country you know like the cowboys was, uh, yeah yeah like oh these Aussies you know they, they think they are yeah and really we just own we, the pitches we, yeah we literally just raised the up oh, there's Damien. Remember Damien? Oh and, yeah. And Bredo, Bredo. Bredo, Sydney, yeah. You know, there's heaps of guys. Ashley, um, guys. Ashley, amazing Ashley. Amazing <laughs> Ashley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like how you know it was really just so good to be a part of life on the street. You know, mm-hmm. and in a way, change people's lives. You know, I I don't really fully comprehend the amount of impact and energy as a street performer that we have you know out there and it, yeah it's, and it's pretty substantial like, I, like now I realize how much of a blessing it really it really was you know for me to find the arts really
1: yeah
2: all my other mates you know they went off with did drugs crime yeah and and got put in jail or become drug addicts and got yeah. of drug overdoses and stuff like that whereas I had the arts you know that basically saved my life.
1: It's a cycle, you know, like uh, you saw like the Flying Dutchman, you're inspired to get better and do bigger. And they probably inspired a bunch of other people aside from you. Yeah. And then there's you, you inspired people like me and the Space Cowboy and, and Shep and everyone. And, and, uh, and in turn, like we have inspired a whole new generation of people to come out and do shows. And like street performance, like yeah. it's big, man. It's bigger, than it's way bigger than it used to be. There's a lot more street performers now.
2: And, you know, the other thing also like, is like, guys like Windsor. You know, Windsor, he used to, like, put us up. You know, there's all these yeah. guys that used to put us up, you know, in London and all these, like, yeah, places yeah. where we used to stay. And, and then there was all the the private schoolboy acts, like Paddy Bromwells and right. Alex Dandridge and yeah. all these, like, call them the private schoolboy, like, <laughs> performers of Cobble Garden. Right. They were like, the good kids, you know, of the, of, of the pitch, you know? Yeah. All the bad kids, you know? Like, Punks. So, to be honest with you, like, I'm super grateful for all those guys, you know, for, like, literally putting up with my bullshit, you know? Because mm. I've been a real menace to a lot of those guys, you know, just because, like I said, I was addicted to being on the pitch and yeah. being the best at what I did, and, and it almost became, a you know, an addiction and a drug, you know? Oh, wait a minute, I forgot Sparky Mark. No, Sparky oh, man, Mark. Sparky. Oh, mate, I can't forget Sparky. It's all right. Sparky. It's, it's Mark not Mark. over yet. Oh, yeah. oh, mate, Sparky, what can I say about that guy? He is one of the nicest people on the planet. Yeah. I have tried to piss that guy off so many times, and <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah. Mark, I love you, man, if you're listening.
1: Yeah, he's a legend, Covent Garden legend, definitely. Richest street performer mate, of all time.
2: Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate. I'm telling you, that guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I, just, I don't know. And there's certain characters in life that you meet, and yeah. Sparky Mark is definitely one of those characters that <laughs> that I'm so privileged to have actually had a part of my life. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Legend. We've had so many ups and downs together and, yeah, we're really looking forward to seeing him when I go to London this year. Yeah, he's got a style, comedy you know? club there. Maybe you can get you a spot. No, I already asked him. He wouldn't have me. He goes, it's stand-up comedy. It's not bright. Right, right, right. I'm like, oh, okay, mate. Fair enough. So really, like I said, you know, um, it's given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. I wouldn't have been able to become the most studied man in the world if it wasn't for all the money that I made Right, street performing. I wouldn't have been able to have been around the world 15 times. I wouldn't have been able to afford the life that I've been able to afford myself. Yeah. You know, and see all the different cultures and people and and places. And it's just amazing to live a life beyond my wildest dreams, really.
1: And what are you Um, um, most proud of in regards to your street performing days?
2: I guess I'm most proud of my will and my desire to... Raise the bar.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he definitely and, and, raised the bar.
2: And, and literally, to do everything I possibly could to stand out and be, or basically be myself, really. Really, the money and the size of the act and the amount of people, it's quite irrelevant, you know? Right. Because, you know, I've seen acts that do small shows that
1: Are amazing, that really yeah
2: that have just as much of an effect on their crowd. Yeah, of course. And and they seem to sort of survive okay, you know, just yeah. with the money that they make. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's really interesting.
1: Where do you feel like you had, like, the greatest street shows of your career?
2: I would say the biggest hat I've ever made and the biggest moment of my street performing career... Would have had to have been in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival right. on the Royal Mile. Yeah, and I did the biggest hat I've ever made, and it was definitely four figures, and it was pounds sterling. So nice. It was just—I don't know what it was. It was like the right time. Everything just right like went perfect, yeah. and the crowd was phenomenal. And the amount of money that I made in that hat yeah. was just. Like, nothing I've ever experienced. Yeah. You know? Like, as far as festivals are concerned, it wasn't the most money that I've ever made in a festival because you don't really get that much pitch time right, because right. of so many acts.
1: So many acts, but, yeah.
2: But, you know, making four figures in one show...
1: Yeah.
2: Pounds. That was you know, probably that unheard
1: was, of back then, too.
2: Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> like, oh, my God, I can't believe yeah. that just happened. Yeah. You know? And I... And I think I even literally counted it twice because I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And even like doing things like me and Pepe, we would keep all our copper coins for the mm. whole Edinburgh Festival and we would literally flip a coin at the end and whoever lost had to bag every uh. copper coin up and carry it to the bank, cash huh. it, and give the winner the money.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> things
2: like that. That's so cool, you know. That's funny. Like, it was, it was so cool, you know. I can't wait to see all my brothers uh, and sisters, you know, in Covent Garden this year, you know, go back and, mm. and just, you know, reunite my friendships and, of course. you know, pay my respects to all the people that have obviously helped me along my way. And, yeah, like, and, and one of my favourite acts of all time, I would say, would have to be... A gentleman called Melvin.
1: Melvin Plummer? Yeah. Yeah.
2: He would have to be one of my favorite acts and Dr. Stewart.
1: Yeah.
2: But Melvin... London guy. Right? Yeah. Melvin, right? I have never, ever seen anybody <laughs> who can consistently go out there under any circumstance yeah. and pull off a show... Always. ...and get a hat yeah. and... Keep backing up. And he is one of the funniest motherfuckers yeah. on the street I've ever met and I've learned how to be a clown and every mannerism every yeah. like Melvin, all that came from Melvin. Yeah, yeah. He,
1: he I can recognise that.
2: The, yeah, he's one of the funniest and and he's one of my true brothers, you know, and um, yeah. I know it's probably people that I haven't even mentioned that I should think. You know, it's going to be cool to go and see all the new kids on the block,
1: you know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. There's,
2: there's
1: so many more now, mate. You're going to blow them out of the water. What, do you want to talk about your yeah, tattoos, yeah. mate? You talked about your first one, but um, how did you start, like, just getting, like, tons of tattoo, and, and how long did it take before you had, like, you know, the whole suit going on? Well,
2: like I said, I was able to collect tattoos from all over the world, you know, because um, yeah. I was actually, like, making so much money street before, man. Um, one thing that's become really apparent to me since an early age was that whatever I put in is what I get back. So Mm. as long as I'm karmically putting back in, I've got the best unicycle, you know, I've got the best outfit. You know, whatever you put in, you get back. So literally the money that I was getting, I was investing in adorning my body with some of the best tattoo art from all over the world. So that just sort of catapulted me into a whole different realm of performance artist, you know?
1: And um, when you started to get, like, a lot of tattoos, how did you feel it helped you or hindered your show or your personal life?
2: It actually enhanced my personal life and my street performing life. Right. Like, literally, like, this is how amazing it got, I would literally stand Yeah. in between the two pillars on the West Piazza... And I would have a complete full crowd already, Nice. just from the visual appearance alone. Yeah. Not, I haven't even opened my mouth. Yeah, like that, that is powerful, man. That that Hell is yeah. like, that's magic that I'm definitely not. I have no idea. I can't put my finger on it, but but yeah, like
1: it was before uh, the time too. Like a lot of people have that now, and this is before that. You know, people didn't see that all the time. Yeah
2: no 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 well well it just felt so natural for me to do that and the good thing was was that in tattoo history there's never really been too many tattoo performers you know they've been tattooing people that learn how to perform yeah but i was a performer before i was tattooed so i was coming from a completely different place you know yeah whereas i believe that's something that you're doing right now you know you're you're adorning your body with tattoos but Really, you're like an A-grade performer,
1: right? Right. Know?
2: So, but whereas there's a lot of heavily tattooed people that couldn't perform to save themselves. Of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a different world, man. You know mm. um, that we come from. Now.
1: I think Sean had said something about when he shows his tattoos, it's harder for him to pull his edge closer. And I was like, huh? Um, but I, I know you probably didn't feel that way, right?
2: No, no, no. In actual fact. It was harder for me to push them back because there were so
1: many people. <laughs> yeah, and I think you, you know, told me Saturday. a story where uh, you said the first day that you got uh, the side of your face tattooed, you walked somewhere that had like a automatically opening door, and you walked up to it and it didn't open, and you're like, "What have I done?" <laughs> 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 yeah,
2: yeah, and it was a taxi driver. Like three taxis went past, ah. and looked at me, and sped off. Right, and then this one taxi. This one, t- the fourth taxi that turned up, turned up and he had his music blaring, right? And he opens the door and he goes, where are you going, mate? I go, St. Kilda. And he goes, yeah, jump in, fella. Like that, boom. And I was like in the taxi thinking, this is meant to be my taxi driver. Yeah, I cool. had to go through those three taxi drivers to get to the right taxi driver. <laughs> that was That's basically the story of my life, man. You mm. know, like whether I'm tattooed or not, you just have to accept everything that you go through to get to where you end up. Yeah. And that's what life teaches you. And I've learned that through street performing. I've learned that through being tattooed. You know? And like I said, I believe that that's why I am the most celebrated tattooed performer in the world because all I did was invest everything that was given to me back into what into I did. yourself. Do. So comically, it's so correct. It just worked out perfect. All I had to do was turn up for it. Yeah. Like, all I had to do was be prepped, And the funny thing was, in Covent Garden, right, there were so many years where they'd go, oh, the only reason that he's got a big circle is because he's got a tall unicycle. Right. right. I proved them wrong. I did a show without a tall unicycle for years, right? Yeah. Then they would say, oh, the only reason he's got a big edge is because of the tattoos. Right. right. Well, I had big crowds before, before. I started. Yeah, right? yeah. It's so like everyone wants to say, oh, it's because it's of this. because, it's of, because, this, of, that. because of this. Right? Yeah. Well, really, it's about your spirit, man. Being a it's good about, entertainer. It's about yeah. you connecting to your up positivity. You know? but, yeah, and, and some people have it and some people don't, you know? Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's entirely up to me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, How I am towards the world, you know? And it's got nothing to do with tattoos. It's got nothing to do with performing. Right. It's to do with how I am within myself, you know? Yeah. Hey, there's a thing I want to mention, man, um, yeah. that you haven't mentioned so far, right? Yeah. It's, um, it's that this happens to every performer, right? This is this is the history of what happens if you're in the game for as long as you or I, right? All right. Okay, this is what happens, yeah? But basically, at the beginning, you just absorb as much as you can. You take whatever you can and you just try and make it your own. Mm-hmm. You try to have your little spin on it, right? You try and make it your own personal little twist to it until you find what it is that's yours, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, then what ends up happening is you become really, really good at what you do, right? Then comes along another person who totally does the same thing to you, right? right? Yeah. And I would take like Melbourne stuff, Kino stuff, the Dutchman, I would try and absorb as much as I could, right? Forrest, you know, you name it. Anything that was good, I'd just like... Take it right, right, and try and make it my own. Like I try and put my own little spin to it. Don't get me wrong; mm-hmm. I wouldn't do a direct lift, but I I put my own spin to it yeah. and try my best to make it my own. Right?
1: That's eventually it turns that's, into your own anyway.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was like a stage there where I had so many people saying to me, "Oh my God, have you seen this guy called the Space Cowboy? Right. He is totally doing." All your stuff, right? I all see. your line, right? Da da da. I'm like, yeah. Well, that's what happens. That's what I did. I mean, I did the same, right? So, all I'm saying is, no disrespect to Space Cowboy, because at least you chose a good person to lift stuff off, right? But <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that you know, you start off where you are, and it builds up to when, when you find yourself. And you become really good at it, yeah. and then you watch someone else actually do the same thing to you. And yeah. it's like a whole process, you know. I feel privileged that I was that person to quite a few people, you know, just like those people were to me, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like this sort of win where that's what happens in the street performance.
1: Yeah, I mean, I run into that all the time, especially, I don't know, in the last 10 years or so, you just see so many people doing the same things that you do, and it's like. Okay, cool, this guy's doing it, this guy's doing it, you know, but whatever, you just keep moving ahead, and he mentioned Space Cowboy, like, he obviously was helped by you, but, like, now he's, like, uh, he's a real innovator, you know, he, he's come so far, and we're all respected, and he's got all his Guinness World Records, and, yeah, he's, uh, he's to be admired now, you know? Yeah, and that's great, man, that's what I'm saying, is that we're all pirates, man, we, yeah. know, we're
2: all, like, taking each other's bullion, and just doing what we do, man. You know what I mean? And there's no real original pirate, man. It's right, like, right. We're all just on the same boat, sailing in the same direction, just at different stages, mate. you know, so... Do you uh,
1: you miss performing on the street?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I do a lot, man. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And yeah. under your advice, I just bought one of the best amps on the market. Stuff and I won't things. mention the name because the product's good, but the person that sells it isn't. And, um... <laughs> I'm glad I just ruined my warranty anyway. Right. My guarantee just went the window. But um, I'm just really, really blessed that, you know, I've still got obviously my skills and I'm fitter than I've ever been and spiritually I'm the best I've ever been.
1: And you remember um, your show? You, you haven't know, forgotten uh, anything?
2: So, nah, nah, No, no, no. You know, it's funny how it all just comes back. It
1: all it just comes back. back when you walk on stage, doesn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah it really does.
1: So uh, what made you take a step back from street performing? I know you you definitely got into tattooing and performing at tattoo conventions a lot. You know, there was obviously like a moment where you you stopped street performing. Why was that?
2: Yeah, I guess, okay, to be honest with you, Al, the reason why I stopped street performing was um, because I got addicted to drugs and I kind of lost myself in drug addiction. And when you lose yourself, what ends up happening is uh, at the early stages of recovery, you end up thinking that whatever you used to do wasn't a good thing and you need to totally reinvent yourself. Right. But what I've since realized is that that's actually not true. All you need to do really is to be able to approach whatever it is that you do do and love doing to the best of your ability with a recovery focus. Right, uh, or being clean, and I like, don't get me wrong. I don't judge people using drugs or drinking or anything like that. It's just not for me today. So I live a life of recovery, and I take a day at a time, and um, and literally I have to be very super vigilant as far as the people that I hang around, the mm-hmm. environments that I hang around, and staying true to to the park.
1: Do you think that there are triggers like for you in? You know, in performing, when you get back to the street performing?
2: Look, there's obviously triggers that you have to deal with on a daily basis, but when everyone's going to the pub mm-hmm. for a drink, say, for instance, so I turn up for the first couple and I just have, like, a, a couple of waters, but then everyone's getting drunk and, you know, starting to talk about drugs and whatever, well, it's time for me to time go. To look, yeah, it's yeah. just not my life anymore, Al.
1: Yeah.
2: I can't live the life that I want to live without, without actually... Uh, being in recovery it's not
1: not possible Uh, uh, and and obviously your dog agrees as well yeah 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 it's a huge issue in our community is um, drug addiction and alcohol especially you know I've I've stayed away from it my whole career basically and I can hang out for a while at a party before and once everyone turns that corner where they're like they're getting rowdy like it's just Time for me to go. You know, it's not because I I yeah. I think I might get drunk or whatever, but I just it's no fun for me anymore. You know, I'm like yeah, I'm I'm, sure. I'm happier by myself at my hotel. Like you know,
2: yeah, and I've always, I've always known that about you, Al, and I admire you for that. But the thing is with me is that whenever I use drugs or whenever I drink, I'm not the same person. So yeah. if I want to be the best possible version of myself. And if that's drug free, well, that's what it has to be. So, mm. and plus, if life is already fun, you don't have to make it any more fun.
1: Yeah, that's it. It already is. You know? Yeah. You're in a great place right now. You're in Europe and getting ready to do some conventions and some street performing. You got your new amp. You got your your mic and ready to rock. It's it's awesome, mate. It's good to have you back.
2: Yeah. Well, look, my ultimate goal, my ultimate street performing goal would be to continue doing great shows, but also, and I'm going to say it here right now in this interview, my ultimate goal would be to actually do a street show with you, Al. Oh, yeah? On one of the biggest pitches in the world, for both of us to come together, the older generation and the new generation, and just... Do the ultimate show.
1: The Alakazam Lucky Rich Super Stunt Show.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) It would be phenomenal.
1: Cool, man. That sounds cool. It would be an honor.
2: I'm totally into it. I think the Dutchman did it. Yeah. You know, Michael Hesling had his own show. Uh, Jean-Michel had his own show. They came together. Boom. The Dutchman. Right. You know, if you're going to do something, you might as well sort of take it to the next level. Go That's the only way I could... That's the only way I could possibly take it to the next level, is to join forces with the top ranks, you know?
1: <laughs> mate, that sounds pretty cool.
2: Yeah. So maybe fly into Edinburgh one day, or right. fly in the Cotton, or I'll fly into Halifax, or do a one-off, you know? Like It'd be good, man.
1: I need a few more tattoos. Uh...
2: I think we've we'll got enough between us, though. <laughs> and I'm a tattooist, so Al, go watch oh, out yeah. for me. Nice. <laughs> See, I told you they're addictive.
1: Yeah, I know, eh? I got this one on the weekend, and I was like, man, that didn't even hurt. I think I want another one.
2: Of course you do. Of course you do. Yeah. (laughs) Nah, it's great, man. It's great to see um, you doing what you love doing, and there's a whole bunch of good crew out there that are doing what they love doing, and at the beginning of the interview, you said some pretty amazing things, and... Mm. And I always feel a little bit weird about that stuff because I think, wow. far away. I even felt weird about doing this interview because it was like the Buskers Hall of Fame. I mean, what? Surely, what? Like that's like kind of like a, you know, like Hall of Fame. You know, like I don't know. It's weird. Well, it
1: came about from Robert Nelson and David Aiken and uh, and it was just like all this stuff that has happened over the years. It will just get lost if all of us go and all of us die and, you know what I mean? Like, and no one would ever know about it, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. it's just a way to record history basically and, and have yeah. this industry like yeah. in a place that people can listen to it and go out wow, and learn from it. But uh, what would you um, want to be known for like contributing to the street performing world?
2: Just that uh, anything's possible that, you know, like if you can be like, a, I guess, a little eight-year-old, You know looking at great sports athletes thinking you know what do i want to do and i want to be great like them you know that anything's possible you know Mm -hmm. i never realized that when i was looking in the guinness world record book when i was eight years old that i would actually be the most tattooed person in in the world and the only reason i have that today is because of street performing and and the arts so Mm -hmm. you know anything's really possible and Put it this way, whatever you're dreaming, you're definitely going to rip yourself off because it's always much bigger and better than anything you anticipated.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's cool. Do you remember Zombie Chris? Chris Peters, he had uh, the kazoo and a really tall puppet, and he did uh, shows like he still does, he's out in Japan. Anyway, Zombie Chris was telling me a story in the Covent Garden days. Um, he said that uh, like him and a bunch of performers were all up on the Punch and Judy and you were doing a show and it had been like a, you know, been a bit of a hard day and it was a tough time, but you had pulled it together and pulled this massive show, you know, like you always did. And, um, I don't know, maybe you looked up there and, and you said to them, none of you will ever have any idea how this works. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that? And uh, do you know what you were talking about? <laughs>
2: You know what, that makes total sense to me because guess what, I don't even know how it works.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) You know, the only way to get any sorts of inclination is to do it. Yeah. You get little moments of where you think, wow, I think I've worked it out, you know? Right. But nah. Nah. (laughs) The street will always remind you that it is more powerful than you. You are not it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I know
2: yeah.
1: it's yeah. crazy so
2: I think that's maybe what I was saying so make sure you tell Zombie Chris that I wasn't referring to the fact that I knew I just thought <laughs> that none of us are ever going to know
1: none of us know how yeah. any, any of this works <laughs>
2: yeah 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 it's like enlightenment the more you go to strive for it the further away it gets
1: yeah <laughs> Sweet. Uh, Any any other short stories you want to tell about, uh, you know, good times, bad times at the pitch, like uh, horror stories or...
2: Oh, look, um, there's been times where, um, like I've thought to myself, I'm on top of the world and there's times where I've thought to myself, I'm the loneliest person on the planet, you know, but um, every journey has its pitfalls and its ups and downs and Mm -hmm. twists and turns and yeah, like, I don't know if you've ever heard that comedy skit from Bill Hicks about the roller coaster ride, but, you know, it's just a ride, you know? And I honestly believe that I'm that lucky that when I die, I'm going to come back as myself.
1: <laughs> nice.
2: Actually, that line, I used to use that line on Eckler's. I used to say, yeah, that guy's so unlucky that when he dies, he's going to come <laughs> back as himself. <laughs> right? Nice. So.
1: Oh, that's cool Uh, I'm
2: going to have to remember all my old heckle lines,
1: you know Yeah, for real, mate There's no need to feel lonely Like, you know, we're a worldwide family We've always been that way And, you know, you're coming back And it's great All your friends are still there You know what I mean? So, uh, it's going to be awesome to have you back on the pitch, mate Yeah,
2: thanks for being a good friend to me uh, Through my ups and my downs Always, mate Always even if you can't beat me at um, uh, Phoenix. No, what was it?
1: Um, G- uh, Ga- Gyrus. Gyrus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I clocked that game after a while. <laughs> but yeah, it took a while. Man. Bike Boy still has that game. It's at his house.
2: Bike Boy's got it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Bike Boy's got everything I've owned. <laughs> <laughs> you must have about five chainsaws 20 amps yeah you know like oh my god
1: he's definitely a buyer and a seller he likes that stuff
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah he definitely is yeah yeah that's for sure hey thanks man thanks for being the one that interviewed for the um street performers hall of fame wow where to next Who i know knows? right is there anything beyond the hall of fame i don't know I don't know, mate. Just
1: uh, just getting out there and being on the scene again. It's going to be awesome. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I can't wait, mate.
0: Cool. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the Donate button or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, from this point forward reach out to story editor Magic Bryan at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Busker content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And to close, one last thought from Lucky Diamond Rich about the creative process.
2: An artist is only as good as how well he hides his sources, because there's nothing original, man. There is nothing that's original. Right? You've lifted something of somebody. It's got to have come from somewhere, man. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the way it is, man. And those who go around claiming to be original and the first person to do things and da da da, da well, they're full of shit, because at the end of the day, you've got it from somewhere. You might have made it a little bit your own, but the ingredients have to have come from somewhere.
0: On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, Al Miller, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening.
2: I was stewed, screwed and tattooed all in one night.